Living a well-balanced lifestyle goes beyond ensuring your finances are in order. Welcome to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer from Hightower. Barbara speaks with wellness industry leaders and related professionals to share more than financial planning advice. She addresses your questions about living a healthy lifestyle at any age. Learn how to gracefully maneuver life's challenges with support and resources to guide you along the way. Barbara and the team at Hightower help you make a plan, make an investment, and make a difference in your own wealth and well-being, and in your families, and within your community. Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with your host, Barbara Archer from Hightower. Barbara, how are you? I am terrific. How are you doing today, Eric? I'm doing great. I know you've got another great guest on the show. Who'd you bring on? Well, today I have Dr. Annie Wilson, and we're going to talk about rebooting our resolutions. All right. So I'm assuming you've never broken a resolution. So Never. Yeah. Not once, well, but please don't ask my wife about that question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, Eric, take a break, and we'll check in with you in a bit. Sounds good. All right. Thanks. So if any of you have ever had the best intentions to improve your life or made a resolution that only went to the wayside by February, we are pleased to have a behavioral scientist with us today that can help us understand why this happens and how to reboot those resolutions. Dr. Annie Wilson is a lecturer of marketing at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and Annie has served as a senior behavioral scientist for Vanguard. She received a PhD in marketing from Harvard Business School and a BA in English and psychology from Georgetown University. Annie's research interests include minimalism, signaling in consumer behavior, and responses to resource scarcity. Her research has been published in marketing journals for consumer research and consumer psychology and appetite, and she has been covered in Harvard Business Review. So Annie, hello and welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, Annie, I am so glad you've joined us today, but I have to ask, what drove you to be a behavioral scientist? It's not something I heard most kids saying when they were growing up. Yeah, it's definitely not something I grew up thinking I would get into. I think you're right about that. And most people in my field do tend to stumble on it somehow, unless they know someone in it growing up. For me personally, I think after I went into it, it, it made sense in hindsight. I've always been really interested in human behavior and psychology. But what kind of drove me into it was I was really interested in clinical psychology, but in particular hoarding. And then I had an advisor who was a marketing professor who said, well, why don't you study that through the lens of consumer psychology and marketing? And I think that the clarity of that link got me excited about consumer psychology. And then I think from that conversation, I sort of dove in and, and set on this path. Wow. Well, that that is interesting. And I understand you're teaching a new course called The Business of Wellness, which is perfect for our keeping the well and wealthy, marketing and consumption. And part of that course will focus on personal strategies for improving one's well-being. So can you share more about what you hope to teach your students? Yeah, definitely. So like you said, half of the course will be on personal consumption strategies for improving well-being based on published research. The other half will be on the wellness industry and its sub-industries. And the sort of overarching goal of the course is to encourage students to 
be more introspective about how they define wellness, how their communities define wellness, how the Wharton community defines wellness, how, you know, where they're from culturally defines wellness. Because I think as a term, it's very nebulous and squishy, which makes it a really potent advertising and marketing term. And it makes it really easy to want to buy products to improve our wellness. But if we're not really thoughtful about what our goals are, or how we're defining it, or how we're enacting the practices we want to use to achieve wellness, then we can kind of get lost on our wellness journeys. So the kind of overarching goal is to encourage introspection, self-definitions of wellness, and then how do you go out and actually enact that in the marketplace? Well, that's fascinating. So you're not going to give them the answer to what is wellness. Sounds no, like that. I, okay. If I had the answer, I would I would might be doing other things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's terrific. So many of us make resolutions to start the year, and we often have the best intentions to stay on a budget, invest more money, lose weight, spend more time with friends and family, go to the gym, eat properly, meditate, just take better care of ourselves. Then life seems to get in the way. So we fall off the wagon. So I'd like to tackle a few of those today. You up for that? I can try my best. Okay. So we understand that financial stress is a, it's bad for relationships on our own health and you do some work in the, in the financial world. So what is the best advice you can give to help someone that has that resolution? They're going to stay on a budget or they're going to invest more money or, to teach them to not panic in a down market. What are some ideas, techniques, tips? What do you share? Yeah, I guess I I think one of the really useful strategies for staying on a budget in particular is shifting from a can't mindset to a don't mindset. And what I mean by that is rather than saying, I can't spend money on this because of my resolution, changing your thinking to, I don't spend money on that, that can often create more of a feeling of empowerment rather than a feeling of kind of restriction. And it removes that sort of temptation, I think, to do the thing or spend the money. So that's a very small tip. I think from preventing panic, that's a probably a bigger challenge. But my general tip is, I, I guess, I, again, encouraging introspection on why are you panicking? What is the root of your panic? So is it fears that you won't be able to retire? Is it kind of a feeling of a lack of control? Is it just sort of a diffuse anxiety? Because often those fears come in really turbulent markets or economies. And then really understanding what is causing that fear, that potential panic. And are there other ways you can resolve that other than panic selling or breaking your resolutions, for example? Well, that's interesting. So it sounds like, again, it requires some self-introspection. Right. I, yeah, Asking I ourselves so. why, or yeah. what's causing that discomfort or fear or lack internally. Definitely. Well, I think having those conversations internally, but also we know financial stress is one of the number one stressors in relationships too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think communicating with your partner is extremely important when it comes to managing financial resolutions and also preventing any sort of panic and economic downturns and having a lot of transparency. In our household, every six months, we do our own kind of going through all of our finances, all of our accounts. We call it finance day, super exciting. And it's just a chance to kind of reset and then set our goals together and make sure we're on track for what we want to do. And then that level of, I think, checking in and communicating can be calibrated depending on how hard it is for you to stick to your goals or how much kind of 
management or oversight you need given your financial situation. So some people might have to do it monthly or quarterly, depending upon their own situation. Yeah, I think depending on their situation and again, depending on kind of what causes them financial difficulties. So if it's an issue of overspending, for example, that might require more significant oversight and kind of looking at that budget on a more regular basis before you find out you've blown through it six months later. But for other people, actually looking at the budget daily may not only be unproductive, it just might not be helpful if that's not really the problem. And the problem is sort of just a general fear of insecurity, in which case maybe a kind of a lesser cadence of checking in can provide the same benefits as more kind of detailed oversight. Okay. Well, you know, I can tell you during volatile markets, we sometimes have clients that say they don't open their statements. And I always think, gosh, I find it interesting, but I guess some people find tremendous angst when they see numbers fluctuating. Yeah. It is each person. Yeah. It's again, knowing yourself and what causes that fear for you. I think that I've heard the term like money petters of people who like looking at their accounts and just seeing that it's there and they don't have any fears that they're going to make any impulsive investing decisions. So for them, checking regularly isn't necessarily a bad sign and not antithetical to their financial strategies in any way or might not compromise them. But for other people, if you know looking at it will either cause needless stress because you're not going to do anything anyway, or might cause you to do something you'll regret then Mm. I think having that commitment device of not checking at all can be really useful. Very good. So what about health resolutions, the gym or staying on a diet? What have you found to be helpful as tips or tactics on how to stay motivated, depending upon the time of year, how to get back on track? Yeah, so... I guess this is also relevant because I'm a personal trainer too. I I didn't realize that you are. Yeah. So I've done that for the past 12 years or so. So this comes up a lot, I think. uh, And this can be difficult to enact, but I actually think one myth is that you need to be motivated to work toward any of these resolutions or goals. And that actually it's more important to be disciplined. I think we often wait for the moment of motivation of when you'll feel like going to the gym or when you'll feel like starting to eat healthy. Um, And most of the time we don't feel like doing that because it's painful to a lot of people. And so I think instead it's again, kind of that can't versus don't mentality of just, I do this. It's not like a, I want to work out. It's just that I do work out every day at this time or whenever it is. And I think to that point, also some sort of more specific tips One is setting a schedule. So when are you going to work out or when are you going to start eating healthy or creating really clearly defined rules for how you're going to enact those goals. Often those sort of general goals of get healthy, get fit, go to the gym, they break down because we're not really specific about the rules. So we don't know when we're sort of breaking our rules as we go. Um, And then I think a really helpful tip that my colleague at Wharton Marissa Sheriff studied was the importance of cheat days or emergency reserves. And actually, if you give yourself some slack in your goals, she shows you're more likely to persist in them because you basically don't want to use the slack. So you think, okay, if I can take off one day a week and then each day you're facing the decision, should I work out or take off from working out today? You basically want to work out so that you save the cheats for tomorrow. And so you actually keep persisting longer when we have a little bit more slack rather than being super rigid in our resolutions. Well, do you find being a behavioral scientist helps you keep your clients motivated? I think so. I think the, I I think it does. I think it helps me figure out more kind of structurally again, where, 
their challenges or opportunities are for staying on the right path toward their goals, which I, again is also sounds sort of not an interesting approach to achieving our goals. But I think actually mapping out and thinking for yourself, you know, where do I where do I, my goals break down? Like, why don't I go to the gym as much as I want to? And then figuring out, is it an issue of time? Is it an issue of motivation? Is it an issue of money? And then figuring out, okay, how can I either make it easier for myself or make something else harder for myself? Say your issue is eating unhealthy foods that are in your house that you don't want to eat. Okay, well, how can you actually introduce friction to stay with your goals versus in other cases, it might be putting your work clothes at the gym so that you don't have a choice but to go to the gym if you want to get dressed. And so at worst, you are showering and getting dressed at the gym. At best, it's getting you to the gym in the morning because you have to go anyway, and then you're actually working out. So I think you can, I think being a behavioral scientist makes me more aware of the context that you can change and how you can move pieces in your environment to improve kind of likelihood of staying on your goals and resolutions. Well, and you mentioned the goals earlier about, um, should we be more specific and then stack those goals so that we can have some successes? Do you find that's helpful in moving forward and less likely to slide back? Or do you just put one big goal out there? I think definitely specificity is important. I think that you can have one overarching goal and then maybe you have the steps or the sub rules that you're going to use to achieve that goal. But without that specificity, I I mean, it's hard to know if you're actually making any progress toward the goal. But I I think within that specificity too, um, I think self-compassion is really important. So if we think about the idea of rebooting our resolutions, I think there's often a feeling of, oh, it's April and I haven't achieved my resolution, so I failed, so it's done. I'll try again next year. But I don't think that black and white thinking is typically very helpful. I think having some self-compassion that there are probably reasons why you didn't fulfill your resolution or you're not staying on track. That's fine. Figure out what those reasons are and then how you can change your environment or make it easier. Or maybe you need to calibrate your goal. I mean, it's really easy in January to get really excited and new year, new you. But at the same time, you are still you. And so sometimes we're a little bit overzealous and maybe you need to calibrate for uh, kind of concrete constraints in your environment or in your life and actually set a new goal moving forward. No, I like that. So if it's March or September, Maybe our goals can be modified or changed and we are self-compassionate and say, we still want to achieve this and we need to get back at it, but then resetting and it doesn't have to be new year, new you. It can be new September, new time to get back on. Yeah. And I think within that setting sub goals can be really helpful. Like I'm just going to stick to this goal for the next month, or I'm going to do it for the next week. I mean, we know that that's how gamification works in apps. Like they very rarely, you look at Duolingo, they don't say you're going to learn the whole language. You're just getting through unit one and then unit two and then unit three, and then you're making your progress forward. And so I think often having monthly goals that build up to that overarching goal can also help make things feel more realistic and approachable um, and can allow you to calibrate as you go, as things, maybe you exceed expectations on your resolution and actually you can calibrate upward too. Oh, good idea. Let's do better and move that up. So as far as kind of goal setting, especially since you are a personal trainer, which I didn't realize, If you're looking at, let's just pick three goals. Let's just say it's, I want to exercise more. I want to eat better. 
and I want to meditate. So if I do three, they're separate types of goals. Do you as a personal trainer only focus on the activity or on nutrition or meditation or any of the other areas? And how can you pull those together? So I would usually focus on the activity and the exercising just because that's what I'm licensed in. But I think mm -hmm. that these things tend to work in a system too, that also tend to reinforce each other. So if you meditate in the morning, if that's your goal, that can often set the foundation for a day where then you eat well, and then you feel good about exercise, and you can kind of think about them moving together. I think that, as you mentioned, you said the word piggybacking to or stacking different stacking. goals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think thinking about, you know, I'm always going to meditate at the end of my workout, or I'm always going to eat healthy or have that more nutritious meal after I work out, that sort of stacking can also be really helpful for keeping goals on track. Well, I want to go back to what you mentioned earlier. You were interested initially in hoarding people that were hoarders. So since you work on consumer behavior, can you tell us how we're being sold or what we should be aware of as consumers to not stray from our resolutions? Yeah, I mean that I spent four years studying that and don't feel finished. So this could that could be a few podcast episodes. But I think... I guess my, there are lots of ways in which the environment is set up to encourage consumption for both better and worse, and both in more manipulative ways, and, also, and those can be both malevolent and benevolent from larger organizations. I think the biggest thing I found is encouraging consumers to slow down. So we know that the feeling of wanting is much greater than the feeling of liking. So that feeling that you really want that thing you're going to order from Amazon feels really big. And then that feeling of liking or satisfaction after it arrives is actually a much lesser kind of positive affect. And so the wanting is driving the clicking. And so I've often found if you, there's many things in the environment, particularly in places like Amazon that are set up to get you to click now. You can one click shop. It's so frictionless. They're, they basically yeah. hand you your stuff before you've thought about wanting it. Um, but Or they present I, things you didn't know you wanted. Right. And they create <laughs> wants too. And they create these kind of unknown wants and forgotten needs as we might refer to them. And I think actually pausing and saying, I'm not, I want this thing, but I'm not going to order it for 24 hours, putting some sort of hold on your purchasing and then giving yourself the chance to reflect on whether you really need that thing can actually be enough of a friction to realize I don't need that thing. I also don't need those cat coasters within 48 hours, I realized. <laughs> and that a lot of actually our consumption is driven by this illusory want. So I just think slowing down in general and having a little bit more intentionality can be a really good strategy for staying within financial or consumer goals. You know, that's terrific because I will tell you in the old days, whenever I would have someone that felt like they were just spending too much money, we would suggest putting their credit card in a large bowl in a and put it in the freezer. So it's in a block of ice and that thing they wanted, whatever it was, they could take out their credit card to go back the next day, put it in the sink and let it thaw. And most of the time, by the time it was thawed, that is that delay and that slowing down. It's like, eh, I don't really need it. Did I really love it? And that was right. the old way. Now there's Apple Pay, right? So it's harder well, to get people yeah. to slow down. 
I was going to say, now you look at it, your credit card saved on the website and then Amazon right. pays linked with 60 other websites. And that's part of the problem is it's designed so that you don't stop and reflect on whether you need this thing or not. And then once it's in your hands, you often encounter what's referred to as loss aversion, which is now it feels like it's mine. And so giving it up actually feels really painful. And so that's why we're often really reluctant to return things, even when we realize oh. we don't really need them or we don't really want them, because all of a sudden the value that we imbue on them is much greater once they're actually in our possession too. Excuse the interruption. I know you're listening to Hightower's Keeping the Well and Wealthy podcast, but if you have questions related to these or other wellness and financial issues, please reach out to your advisor or go to hightoweradvisors.com to find a financial advisor near you. Now, back to Barbara. Oh, that's interesting. Loss aversion. Hmm. So in your bio, you also mentioned you have an interest in minimalism. Can you share what this is and why that's an interest to you? Yeah. So when I think about minimalism, I guess what attracted me to it was namely the fact that minimalism seems to confer status in contemporary society, or at least in contemporary Western society. And I found this really interesting because historically owning lots of stuff conferred status. So the idea that actually saying you only own five t-shirts or Steve Jobs wearing the same outfit every day or people living in tiny homes conferring status felt really interesting to me. What we find is that uh, the elements of minimalism are basically you own few things, you appreciate a sparser, sparser aesthetic, and you're more mindful and intentional about your consumption. And so the first two were less surprising to us, but the idea that mindfulness and intentionality was really integral to all the different types of minimalism we observe from like the Tribeca loft owner in New York City to the tiny home owner in the in middle America, that these were kind of linking that, those minimalism ideologies was interesting to us. And what we found is that it actually is seen as a status symbol in part because people see it as a sign of having higher self-control. So it sort of goes back to that waiting to purchase, being intentional about purchases, that in contemporary society, it's often easier to consume than not consume, which is not how it's really ever been before. It's usually it costs money, it costs time, it costs effort to buy things, which is why you have high status when you have stuff. Now it's easier to click one, click buy. It's easier to respond to ads. It's easier to pick up more things and find high quality things cheaply. And what's hard to do is to actually not overconsume. And so if you can push back, we find that actually confers more social status for people. That's fascinating. So if I have a new year's resolution to clear out all my closets, it would be helpful to know that looking at one piece of clothing and making that decision, whether to give it away, to sell it, to whatever I want to do, that would be helpful in minimalizing my closet and then thinking, hmm, that's a status symbol. I never thought of it in that term. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I think so. And I think also we find that the act of minimizing can also feel very liberating, much more than acquiring things. So acquiring things can give us a feeling of kind of power of like, we are literally getting more stuff we have control over, but giving things up can have a liberating effect of feeling freer. We talk about the heaviness of stuff, your stuff owns you. And so also it's, it's kind of freeing you in a way too. It's making it easier to move around or add things to your environment. Well, you'll get a kick out of a line I used. I think I turned 40 and my children were young. I was traveling, building my business. It was very just a hectic time. 
And my husband asked me what I wanted for either birthday or a holiday. And I said, if I have to walk it, dust it or insure it, I don't want it because it was just more, more stuff, something else to take care of, something else to do. And I was topped out. Well, and I think it's interesting. They talk about like fish and plants tend to grow to the size of their enclosures, but I think humans do too, when it comes to our stuff, if we have an empty space in a room, we think, what should I put there? Should I put a chair there? Should I put, you know, an easel there whatever it is? But I think sometimes stopping and asking, why do I need to fill that space? Can I actually just have it as space or have it as an option for the future if something really exciting does come to mind can be more useful than thinking, oh, there's space, I must fill it. How should I fill it? That is fascinating. I see how that happens. And it's interesting when I see people have collections and whether they're baseball mitt collections or little pieces of porcelain collections, whatever they are, It always makes me wonder, um, when do you stop or do you keep doing that? Is that, is it truly a fascination or is it something that have started in your teenage years and everyone knew you liked? I have a a friend yesterday that told me they got rid of a lot of little pigs that one of their parents had collected. And is that something that just becomes a habit? Yeah, that's interesting because collections are often a little bit of an exception to the minimalism hoarding rules because they are very intentional. Collections are also interesting because they usually have a high degree of self-identification involved in them. And so maybe your friend's mother was known for her pig collection or people are known for their sports cards collections or known for their Beanie Baby collections or whatever it is. And collections can be very empowering because they often have this tactile nature where you're manipulating stuff. You know a lot about the topic, so you have this kind of mastery of information, and it feels connected to you. And I think when we think about like minimalism and hoarding, what's sort of important is not so much how much stuff you have, but what is the stuff that you're keeping? And I think there's value to keeping stuff that has identification value. I mean, I'm not going to say I don't have a lot of stuff from athletic glory days or whatever it is to reinforce that feeling of an athlete identity that I don't get as much in my adult life now. And so having some things around that remind us of accomplishments or former selves or former activities can have a lot of, I think, symbolic value when we encounter them in our day-to-day life. Um, Having a pig collection maybe in a cabinet somewhere that you're not even interacting with and you're just sort of passively or habitually adding to, I think that's when you start to think, do I need this? Is this really bringing value to my life? Or is it just something I'm doing because I've done it for so long? Or is it bringing joy? Because it could have been different earlier in your life. And if I wasn't spending my time or using my space on this, what else could I be using it for? Good point. I'm going to go back to your can't to don't mindset. I was reflecting as we were discussing this about the, I'm kind of an intentional eater. I'm plant-based. So it's one of the things that I have to do very often. It's like, I can have that, but I choose not to. So how do we use that in other parts of our lives? So I think it can be really useful for setting boundaries, particularly in social situations. So I have this for myself with friends and socializing. One of my rules is 
I go to the gym every day. And part of it is for physical fitness. A lot of it is for mental health. Um, and so I know I will be crabbier if I don't do that. And so I set the rule when friends say, hey, can you come to this happy hour? Can you do this thing? I can't until I'm done at the gym. But I often in my head say, because this is what I do. It's not really a choice. This is this is what I have to do for my own self-care and meeting my own goals. And I think just being very clear on those rules with yourself and others, that's where that can't and don't can be useful. You know, we run into this particularly as people's eating habits have changed, I think in the last couple decades, where there's like a, you know, are you celiac? Are you selectively gluten-free? In my mind, I'm not sure why there needs to be a big distinction other than the obvious health risks in one case versus the other. Sure. But in both cases, if the person isn't eating that that category of food, and that should be respected by others. And I think sometimes socially, with good intentions, friends can creep in on resolutions or different health goals that you have because they want to spend time with you and they want your attention. And I think being actually very clear on your rules for yourself can be better for you and the relationship at the end of the day. Well, absolutely. It's like when someone's trying to lose weight and they say, oh, I just made this cheesecake. You have to try it. Just have one bite. That's not fair. You know, so as friends and family, we have to respect those desires to stay on track. Yeah. And I think when it comes to rebooting our resolutions, thinking about maybe what in your environment or your context is keeping you from achieving your goals, I think looking at social networks can be really useful of are there certain people or groups in your network that aren't helpful in supporting your goals or aren't helpful in um, actually facilitating the rules that you're trying to set. And it's, I'm not suggesting you necessarily cut those people out, but I think being more mindful of how they might try to edge in on your goals, how you can be firmer on setting your own boundaries, or in some cases, maybe that's not a group you can be connected to right now as you work towards some particular goal that's important to you can be a really helpful way of changing the context around you. Well, and choosing those social groups can be a part of self-care so that you can stay on track. Definitely. I often think about when choosing friends or choosing friends to spend time with, the importance of choosing people that make you the best version of yourself or pull you toward your ideals. Those people tend to also be helpful in achieving whatever your resolutions are. So I think that can also be a way to think about choosing those relationships. Oh, well, Annie, this has been so great. I've learned so much from you today. Two things in particular, the can't to don't mindset and wanting is greater than liking. So taking the time to slow down. And so those two things can help us either reboot our resolutions or kind of stay on track. So that's been very helpful. So Annie, now we all want to know, how do you keep your well and wealthy? Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like I do a lot of things to stay well. I have a pretty intentional schedule. I read for an hour every morning. That's kind of how I start my day, deliberately reading non-work materials and books. I go to the gym every day. I eat well, and I try to spend a lot of quality time with friends and with my partner. So um, trying not to use technology in social situations and being very deliberate about my social time. Oh, terrific. All good resolutions I can stack right in there. So thank you for sharing that. We really appreciate all the tips you've given us to get back to energizing our resolutions and get some inspiration from your own personal well to keeping your well and wealthy. And so I'm going to ask Eric to come back in and join us. Eric? Absolutely. 
So do you have any questions for Annie or have you never broken a resolution? Oh, I've broken a few in my day. <laughs> but you cleared up something for me. Uh, you guys were like a team helping me figure something out because I've been doing something wrong for a very long time. I have a lot of cat coasters in my freezer. So oh, I don't know. I funny guy. Know. Yeah. So I got to figure out how to thaw those out and maybe give them away. But to, you to your point, collections, I think, are a great idea. And I'm pretty sure, Barbara, that you've spoken about this before, but my grandmother just out of the blue years and years and years ago, somebody gave her like a porcelain rooster. She thought it was adorable. She loved it. And that was the family's cue to give her roosters every Mother's Day, give her roosters for all sorts of gifts. And it took her 15 years to tell people, I don't like roosters. I just thought oh. it was painted cute, but she was so oh. polite, right? Oh, <laughs> so. see, we really have to understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a great podcast. Oh, well, I do have to mention, Annie, you're fine if people contact you through your own personal website, AnnieWilsonPhD.com. Yes, of course. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. We've had such a great time. And Eric, I hope you feel better soon. And um, you can wind this up for us. You got it. Again, Annie, thank you so much for your time. Barbara, of course, thank you for facilitating this. <clears throat> and our last thank you, of course, goes to the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to Keeping Well and Wealthy with Barbara Archer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Barbara comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. We humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review. This actually helps others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Hightower, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to go out in the world and make a difference. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Hightower Wealth Advisors. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Hightower Wealth Advisors is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Wealth Advisors and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Hightower Wealth Advisors and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. 
Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material is not intended or written to provide and should not be relied upon or used as a substitute for tax or legal advice. Information contained herein does not consider an individual's or entity's specific circumstances or applicable governing law, which may vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and be subject to change. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions.